This morning, we're talking a lot about God as a good father. And so I want to start this morning by talking about what was a father like in the Roman Empire. So I asked the Westervelt family to help me illustrate a point that I want to make on this. And it's basically the, is what happened when a, a Roman father had, was, was received a child. So as you see, there, we have a, uh, a Roman couple here. And so upon the, you know, so I want you to imagine a Roman father whose wife had given birth. And when this happened, so let's say it's a, it's a son, the newborn child would be set at his feet. And if the father wanted to acknowledge his son as his and his heir, he would pick up the child and hold it before him as his son and heir. <laughs> like the Lion King. And then, but if instead the child born was a daughter... He would react differently. Instead of picking up the child, he would merely signal for the child, if he wanted to to keep her, would merely signal for the child to be, okay, you can take care of it. You can feed it. And here's the thing. If for any reason the father did not want this child, there was a defect, or simply... What often happened is if he wanted a son and it was a girl, he could simply say instead, get rid of it. Throw it out. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Thank you for that. That's the, the only point I want to get across. <laughs> so they, the, if the child, oftentimes it would be a girl child, they would just leave it out to die of exposure or to be picked up by maybe a slave trader. Um, there's a a letter we have from that era where a Roman soldier named Hilarion wrote a letter to his wife, and it's a touching letter. He talks about their affection and, you know, their plans. And he says, I'm asking you and begging you to take care of the little child, and when we are paid, I will send it, meaning money, to you right away. So, you know, he's, he's, he's gone, he's off on mission, and, but then he adds this, If you happen to be pregnant again, if it is a boy, leave it. But if it is a girl, throw it out. In the Roman Empire, there's actually quite a bit of a gender gap. There's a lot more men than women because of this dynamic, because sons were valued, but daughters were not so much. Um, Now, truth be told, we see the same dynamic today in parts of the world. In China, there are 35 million more men than women. Now, knowing that, you know, the natural birth rate is pretty much 50-50 or really close to it, how could that be? Well, since the invention of the ultrasound, they have been able to tell whether it's a boy or a girl in utero, utero, and China had a one-child policy. And if you were a Chinese couple and you could only have one child, many of them wanted a son. And so that 
their desire for a son meant, well, if I can only have one, they would use sex-selective abortion to get rid of a girl. Even without the one-child policy, India had the same dynamic. They have uh, one count was 25 million, another was even 60 million more men than women. Now, do you realize what that means? It means there are 60 million or so baby girls that were, were terminated before they were born simply because they were girls. Like, that is the status of daughters in the eyes of the world. What I want to think about is what is the status of daughters in the kingdom of God? Is that how God sees the situation, or does he look at things differently? We're in the, the letter of Galatians. Paul, the apostle, wrote the letter to the church in, the churches in Galatia. That was a region. There were various churches there. But it's the Christians in Galatia, and the theme of the whole letter, the letter is about the gospel, what Jesus did in giving his life for our salvation. And, and one of the points that comes out clearly in the letter as a whole is he, the gospel leads to freedom. When we put our faith in Christ, we have been set free because of the work of the gospel. And our specific passage we're digging into, this, this, it's a little bit from three and also from four. It, the main idea is this, in Christ we are not slaves under the law, but instead we are heirs of the kingdom, that we inherit the kingdom. God, Paul wants the Galatian believers to understand that because there are some who are trying to lead them astray. There are some who are telling these new Christians in Galatia that they need to follow the law. That, that's the key. And he's saying, no, way. Wait, wait, the, the, the Old Testament law does not lead to freedom. Being in Christ leads to freedom. The good news is Christ has redeemed us. So, in Christ, we are not slaves under the law, but we are heirs of the kingdom. So, so starting in verses 23 and 24, there's two analogies in those two verses for what the Old Testament law... Now, what Paul talks about when he's saying the law, he means the first five books of what we would call the Old Testament. In Hebrew, it's the Torah. It's the Old Testament law given by God through Moses to the people. And he says, before faith came, meaning before there was this opportunity to put our faith in Christ, the, the law was operative. Before faith came, but it says, we were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned until that coming faith. So the one analogy Paul uses for the law is as a prison guard. That's interesting. The next analogy in verse 24 says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Now that word translated guardian is actually in Greek, pedagogos, or pedagogue. Do we have any educators here who can say what a pedagogue is? Tutor, or just the teacher of a child, instructor of a child is what it literally means. Pedas, child, pediatrics. Right? So, so in other words, Paul gives two metaphors for the law. One is an elementary school teacher, and the other is a prison guard. Those are basically the same thing, right? right? I, I, I don't know. I, I'm married to a teacher. I maybe shouldn't go there. But um, 
Now, these are all kind of negative pictures, in a sense, of the law given by God. But Paul, in other places, does say, he says, the law is good, right? The law has its purpose. It, it, it can instruct us in the ways of God. But the problem is not the law in and of itself. The problem is human sinfulness. And human sinfulness being so rooted, the radical corruption of sin within each and every human being means that the law is not salvific. The law cannot save. The law can point to what we should do, but it cannot get us there because we are so broken through our our sinful nature. And so what the law could not do, God would do through sending his son. So verse 25 Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God through faith. So so why, why, why was Paul hitting so hard about the law? Because the situation of the Galatians, where some were saying, hey, that Jesus stuff, you're, you're, you know, now believe, and that's great, but, but make sure you still got to follow the law. And and specifically, it was telling these Gentile, non-Jewish, Greek-speaking Christians, oh, you need to be circumcised because that's what the law says. And Paul's saying, no, you are no longer under the law. It says that the law is no longer your guardian. The law was a temporary solution. I talked last week about duct tape, right? How I had to duct tape my van because it, it had been broken. But, but that wasn't the ultimate solution. That was a temporary solution until it could get truly fixed. The law was our guardian until the right time. It was a temporary, it was a duct tape solution until the right fix could come. And now that faith, now that Christ has come, we're no longer our guardian. Instead, in Christ, we are sons of God. So, The law could only leave us as bondservants under the law or slaves. Christ would make us sons and heirs of God. Christ could do what the law could not do. John 1.12 says the same thing. It says, um, to all who received him, to those who believed in the name of Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. That's what God wants to do for anyone who, who puts their faith in Jesus. We become part of his family. We become children of God, sons of God. And then verse 27 makes it clear who is included in that promise of being a son and an heir. It says, for as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So baptism, we picture water. Rightfully so, because we use water to baptize. But the water baptism that we do as a church is an outward act that has an inward meaning. We baptize with water. That's the outward ritual symbol of what God's Spirit does within a person. And so the inward unseen baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit of us into Christ. He baptizes us into this connection with Christ, the spiritual union. Just as in baptism you are surrounded by the water, so now um, when you put your faith in Jesus, the, the Holy Spirit envelops you into Christ. You have put on Christ. Right? That's what baptism is meant to symbolize. Uh, John the Baptist says, I baptize with water, but the one coming, Jesus, 
will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, we have union with Christ. Um, it says later, it says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You're united into one, one body in Christ Jesus. Twice, it says, um, two different ways it talks about who, who this extends to. It says, you are all sons of God. So it's for all who put their faith in Christ. And then it also, the other place, as many who were baptized. So it makes clear it's for, for all and any who come to, to Jesus, the Son of God, that this is included. And then verse 28 just makes it very clear that in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. You are all one, made one in Christ Jesus. In the Greek Roman Empire of that day, the three great divisions within society were your ethnicity, your social status, and your gender. You, we have statements from like philosophers, like um, one uh, or Aristotle, I think, even said, "I'm I'm glad that first of all God made me a a man, not a, a an animal." and that God made me a man, not a woman, and that God made me a Greek and not a barbarian, which would be a foreigner. So the, the divisions of society were, were then, then they wouldn't even need to say, I'm glad I wasn't made a slave, because that was inherent to it. So, so what God's, that's how you defined yourself. That's it, what, what your race, your gender, and your social status determined what roles and privileges, what status you had in society, what you could do and not do. That was determined by that. Not so in God's kingdom. God is no respecter of persons, and his kingdom does not operate that way. We are not defined by those attributes. We are defined instead by who lives within us. If Christ is in you, you are a son of of God. The Roman Empire may say that you're a slave, but you are a son and heir of the King of Kings, right? And so all of these things, and it's true whatever your social status, it's true whatever your race, it's true for both men and women. In fact, here we're seeing that women are designated as sons of God. Is that odd? Women, is that odd to be, to be, if I if said, you are a son of God, does that feel odd to you? I know as a man, when we talk about the church, us, we are the bride of Christ, that feels a bit weird to me, you know? We, we, you know, we just got to work through that. But, but that's, the, both analogies are, are saying something. Um, why doesn't Paul sp spell out that, well, men are sons of God in Christ and women are daughters of God? Now, one reason is, is he doesn't really need because of the androcentric language, right? That, that the sons, plural, could refer to men and women, just like brothers in the Bible refers to both brothers and sisters. Um, but there's another reason that God specifically would, does not use the word daughters and sticks with women also or being as considered as sons. And, and to do that, we've got to look at there's three aspects to what it means to be a son of God. One is simply this. We have a place in the family of God. Right? You are part of, when you say yes to Jesus, you are part of God's family, his household. 
right? We, you, Jesus redeemed us, so there's no barrier of sin. We are reconciled into a relationship with God. And what is God? God is our Father who art in heaven, a good, good Father. And we are rightly related to, the, to him. Um, we are part of him. We're part of the family. We're one in Christ Jesus. We're one family. And, and the gospel message, if that's all the gospel message was, that because of Christ, we're now a, a, a child of God, we're in the family, and we get to live with God for eternity. If that's all it was, that, that, is, that is worth it, right? That's good news, incredibly there. Um, but if that is all that it's meant, it didn't have to use the word son of God. It could have just said child of God, which is a, a neutral term in, in Greek as well as English. And it could just be a child of God. But there's son of God conveys something more than just being part of the family. A second thing that it means is a son bears the image of the father. Right? We know that kind of intuitively, right? Like a son, um, ideally, looks, looks, looks a bit like his father, bears that same, same image, and oftentimes we can see it. It harkens back to Genesis 1.27, where it says, um, God made man in his image, male and female, are made in the image of God. And so now in Christ, because his righteousness counts for our righteousness, because, because of what he's done, uh, his spirit comes into our life, we now bear the image of God. That image got broken because of sin, but, but what's going on is God's spirit begins to reshape us so that in our life, as we follow Christ, as we learn his ways, as he changes us, we become more and more to reflect that image again. So, uh, a son of God means you have a place in the family. Son of God means you bear the image of the Father. And lastly, we see this emphasis here. A son of God is an heir or an inheritor of the kingdom. It says in verse 29, it talks about being an heir of Abraham. Well, the, the, the Abraham was the man that God started with when he began his redemption plan. That, that, and it says to Abraham, you, your descendants will be a blessing to all nations. And so um, we become an heir of the promise given to a Abraham, the heir of God's kingdom. Later it just says heir of God. If God is the king, then to be his inheritor means we are part of, we're in the kingdom and in an heir of the kingdom. So, so here's why it has to be sons. In the ancient formulation of things, only sons inherited right? This is, this is the key point. Only a son could inherit. What did the daughters get instead? Daughters got a pre-mortuary inheritance known as a dowry. So the way it worked is a daughter would marry out of the family, marry into a husband's family. That's just the way the social relationships worked. So a daughter would receive a portion of the father's estate when she married into a new family, and that would be something she would carry with her into the marriage. The sons had to wait till dad died before they got their portion of the estate. So, so to be a son was to be an inheritor. And so Paul um, does not say by, by faith women are daughters of God because Paul wants to make clear that they, as much as the, the men, are heirs of God's kingdom, just like the sons. That's why it says it the way it does. So that's the portion of 
uh, Galatians 3, in, in chapter 4, Paul reiterates these same truths. And, and look at what he's trying to get across. So, so he's, he's reiterating the same stuff, but he's kind of saying it a little differently to make sure people catch it. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. So this is back to the idea of how, what's the status under the law. Paul says, prior to Christ's coming, mankind was like a child of a great landowner or a child of the king, though, so, though they are destined to inherit everything. When you're a child, you're not that different from a slave, right? Little children get, you know, have to follow the rules. They get ordered around. They, they, they don't, no one's going to take their orders seriously when they're that age. It says they are under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Verse 3 says, In the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So this is saying that, that slavery before Christ for, for mankind was true for both Jews and non-Jews. Jews were under the guardianship of the law. The rest of humanity really was, was under the, the enslavement to the elementary principles of the world. That, that phrase is very difficult to translate. I think Bible translators struggle with it. Here's what I think it means. I think it means the world the way it is. You ever heard that phrase? Well, that's just the way things are, right? So, so what it's saying is we were kind of under slavery in the, the brokenness of the world and how it works that we, we were in this position of a, a society filled with oppression and injustice that arises from societies made up of sinful people. So that was our status. So what happened? And I love verse four, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Jesus, in order to redeem us, was born, um, he, though he was the son of God, he became fully human in our midst. And he also placed himself fully under God's law. He was born amidst the, the Jewish people. And he alone lived out a righteous life. He alone kept the law perfectly so that he alone could offer his sacrifice on our behalf, to set us free, to, to earn our salvation, that, that he alone could do that. And that's the, the whole gospel message that Christ came to redeem us. And, and it does two things. He redeems us from slavery. Right? Slavery, redeem means to buy out of. He bought us out of slavery with his life. And then he, he did more than that, though. Then he adopts us as sons. He did that. Um, when the fullness of time had come, God sent this path of salvation. And it's not just so that we go to heaven when we die. It brings us into this relationship with God. That offer is, is here for anyone who's, who's looking to know who, what God is like. Anyone who wants to spend eternity with God, you can put your faith in his son and be added to the family this very day. Um, one question is, why did God wait so long? Right? Why, why did he, there's so many centuries of, of the Bible and, and the time there. And, well, God's timing is often beyond our ability to grasp. But let me offer one answer. I think we had to see 
both in history and in the Old Testament history, that salvation could not come from within humanity. That no person, man or woman, could, could bring us, could set things right. That was really my main point if you were with us last Sunday. That, hum, that salvation could not come from within humanity. God had to bring it in through his son. And so that leads us to verses 6 and 7. It says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of a son into our hearts and, say, and saying, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son and then an heir through God. The gospel of Christ changes everything. The gospel is a, uh, the word that just means the good news of what Jesus has done and what he does for us. The gospel changes everything. Through the redeeming work of Christ, Jesus would undo the curse of sin. We've been talking about the curse of sin in the last few sermons. And, and so pre- in previous sermons, we were mostly in the Old Testament. And I, I was talking about how the curse of sin played out in the, the Old Testament, like that God describes the, the situation that people faced. Because of sin, the image of God that we were made in was broken. It was marred by the corruption of human sinfulness. But in Christ, we would be adopted as sons of God, and so we again would begin to uh, bear the, the image of God within the world. Because of sin, Adam and Eve were evicted from the Garden of Eden where they had a closeness with God. Now, because of sin, there'd be a distance between people and God. But now in Christ, because of Christ, we would receive the Holy Spirit, which, which would dwell within us and, you know, even out of us. It would cry, Abba, Father. It would bring us into this closeness with God, our Father. Because of sin, it said that to dust we came and to dust we would return. But now in Christ, we have eternal life. Yes, one day in this life, our body will die and we will go to dust, but we have, we have the promise of a resurrection. When Christ returns again, our bodies will be raised from out of the dust and we will be given new life just as he was, as he was raised out of the tomb. So we see that all these ways, Christ was undoing the curse in what he did. So this is what I want to think about. What about that part of the curse that has to do with men and women? The verse that I think I've, I've shared each of the last four sermons, Genesis 3.16, where it says, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he will, re- re- he will rule over you. Because of sin, we talked about how the relationships between men and women, between husbands and wives, do not operate as they were designed. Instead of uh, partnership, there was competition for power. And men would use their strength to gain rule over women. And that's still how the things often operate within our world. But that, how that's not how it tends to be for followers of God. In Christ, men and women, regardless of social status, would be heirs of God. Women are counted as sons of God, as heirs of God, as much as, as, much as men are. And God's intent, here's the key, 
God's intent for his people is that we would live like that truth. That men and women would both serve and work together to promote the kingdom. That, that, that we would bring the differences that we have, that God made us as male and female, we would bring different strengths into his service so that as, a, as one body in Christ, we will, um, we will work together for the, for the kingdom. So we're moving in from the Bible translation or, uh, commentary to uh, a discussion for the last five or ten minutes. And so I want to make sure you're awake, right? But I, I want to, because to, I've been thinking a lot about this. What does it look like? What does God want for men and women within the church, for husbands and wives in marriage? How does he want us to work together? I am convinced that, that in the early church, I mean, verses like these raise the status of women. And so that they played an important role in the early church. So let me, let me highlight a book. It's called, uh, by Rebecca McLaughlin. It's Confronting Christianity. And she writes about one of her chapters has to do with, with men and women and, and how specifically what the Bible teaches about it. And, and here's a, a quote from, from her book. He says, in the early church, The status of women was raised in the church. Paul's inclusion of nine women among the ministry partners he lists at the end of his letter to Romans is one evidence among many that women played a major role in the first century spread of the Christian message. So think about this. The early church just started with like 120 people and it rapidly grew throughout the whole Roman Empire so that in a couple hundred years, it became the dominant faith within the Roman Empire, but it started small. One of the reasons I believe the church made such an impact and was able to do that is because it offered a place for women to exercise their gifts and that that men and women together could do more than when they're left out of the loop. And in fact, Christianity was derided by the Roman critics as being a religion of women and slaves. So let me give you a, a quote from this. Roman critics mocked Christianity for its appeal to women. So here's another quote from Rebecca's book. It says, The second century Greek philosopher Celsus snarked that Christians want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, only slaves, women, and little children. Right? That's who makes up the church. Another critic said Christianity attracted credulous women with the inability natural to their sex. So the, the attitude within the culture and what made how they mocked Christianity for, for raising the status of women so that women were actually attracted to this, this faith. Um, and that's, I think, a key part of how the gospel went forth into the world. Do you know what drives me nuts in our modern day and age? Christianity is derided as being oppressive to women or, or they say the Bible is denigrating or denigrates women. It drives me nuts. Like, if you understood what was going on within the culture that, that the Bible was speaking to, it was raising the status of, of women in a way that, that we, could ha- we, we have trouble getting our heads around. That's why I started with this little illustration of how, how unvalued were the daughters 
in, in that culture. Christianity, it was Christians who went around and started picking up those babies that the world cast off. That's the other thing they did, valuing the life of those girls when the society did not. Um, and so to, to give another quote from Rebecca McLaughlin, uh, it says, true Christianity flips the script on the marginalization of women that characterizes many traditional cultures and gives them equal status before God with a whole new role to play of witnessing to the gospel of Jesus and loving others in his name. I love it. But, but here's the thing. Here's what goes wrong. But, and, and this, let me give you the quote, the rest of this quote. It says, but it is nonetheless true that biblical frameworks diverge from some of the core doctrines of modern feminism around the kinds of freedom women, or men for that matter, should enjoy. Christianity, over the long haul, the Bible has had an impact on the culture and how women are viewed and treated. It, where does the culture get the idea that women have equal status to men, at least in theory? They didn't get it from the ancient Greek philosophers. They didn't get it from the Roman Empire, right? That was not there. I think it was the long uh, progression of the growth of Christianity and, and the Bible becoming part of our cultural heritage that built the idea that women are of equal standard. Another idea it built, there should be no double standard, that, that men can sleep around, but women have to stay faithful. That was, that was very much inherent to the ancient world. But in the Bible, it is not so. So let me, let me make this point. The basis for equality of women that our modern culture prizes rests on a foundation of the Bible and the spread of Christianity. They forget that, though. They, they don't see the connection. They don't see the foundation. It's a little like that analogy, like they're on a limb, and they decide, well, I'm just going to cut this limb off. They're, they're speaking against decrying Christianity as oppressive and missing out on the truth that the Bible's the, the whole basis for which we can make these, these, these charges, and they, they go beyond what the truth is. So let me give you some examples of what I'm thinking. So in some of the modern culture, they, they assert that women are not just of equal status, but they insist that women be independent of men, that they don't need them. Have you ever heard that women needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle? Like one of my favorite quotes, right? Well, no, we're made to need each other. We're made to be inter interdependent within marriage or even just in society. We do need each other. Um, instead of receiving marriage as a gift from God that's good for both men and women, they'll argue that marriage is itself a form of oppression and that is bad for women. When the social statistics say that some of the happiest people on earth are that pe people are happier when they're married together. Um, they they're not content to just get rid of the double standard that men would be expected to maintain faithfulness just as women are. Instead, they say faithfulness in marriage is old-fashioned. It doesn't matter. Um, instead of calling men to be good fathers within a marriage, they'll say the role of fathers in their kids' lives is not important at all. 
Um, Another thing that they'll, they'll, instead of valuing men and calling men to use their strength to, uh, that given by God to provide and protect for their family, they'll say that masculine virtues are inherently toxic. Now, we agree masculine virtues can become toxics in the way they're applied sometimes in a world, but they'll say it's inherently toxic. Um, instead of valuing the fact the equality of men and women, they'll say there's no difference between men and women. That, that, that's just a, a social construct, that men and women are the same. Uh, something I was reading this week, I, I think about there's that call for women to be paid for equal, you know, equal pay, equal work. Totally agree with that, right? I think the Bible's, you know, let the, the uh, worker get paid fairly. But just a thought on that, uh, the thing I read is men account for nine out of ten workplace fatalities. Do we want equity there too? Ninety percent of workplace fatalities are men. And you know why? Lumber, lumberjacks are almost all men. Coal mining. Men take dangerous jobs. Men and women are different. Some, there could be unequal pay in the end because it's not equal work. Men take different kinds of jobs for the sake of equity? Should we declare that women, for, force women to take those kind of jobs? All right, getting argumentative, but, but I'm seeing this play out in society, and I think what it's missing is that this points to, to a great truth. And we, we should not abandon what the Bible says about men and women. We should embrace it and understand it and see that. The church, the community of followers of Christ, at times will live differently from the, the people of this world. We, and at times, we might echo the same things. And, the, and, and so what may be hard to get our head around is that the culture the Bible is written in, the issues that faced were so different than, than where things do now. And so we, there are times when Christian ethics will align with our secular world. But we need to sort that through and think it out before we just reject or accept anything. And most of all, whatever our culture says, we keep coming back to the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel changes everything. And we are to be changed by the gospel of Christ. We are to be shaped by the working of his word within his life. And we are to be a community of disciples, men and women together, whatever race and social status, brought into one body together, bearing, bearing the gospel message in our community. We are to learn together. Our goal in East Glenville, right? Do we know this? We're learning together. How do we say it? How to love God and love others. Let's try it again. Learning together how to love God and love others as we follow Jesus together. That's what we're about. We are one body in Christ. The Lord's Supper is a picture of that community we have in Christ. We come around a table as brothers and sisters in the faith. We come around one table, not separate tables. We partake together of of one, one loaf of bread, one cup, even though we cut them up into little pieces and they're, you know, little cups, we, we believe it is one, one, one bread and one cup that we share together that, that's a picture 
of the unity we have in Christ. And so let us come. And before we come, I want to give us an opportunity. We do this every time before we take communion together to, to have some silent time before God. If there's any, any sin you need to confess, if there's any thing blocking you between God, now's the time to just own up before it before God and invite God to, to do a work in your life, to prepare you so that we can come together as one people to the table. Confess, let's, let's open up and confess our sins before God in silence.